All right. Hey, good morning, everybody. Yes. So, we had a cold front hit this weekend, huh? Yeah. <laughs> oh, as cold as it gets. There was a little bit of cool breeze on Friday night at our our kids' football game, and uh, and that was kind of nice. So tomorrow, uh, this morning, um, we are going to do some like studying the scripture together, and we are going to look at what God is saying to us from His Word. And so we're going to do something really theological here, and it's called exegesis. Okay. Extra Jesus, right. And actually, that's what happens when we do exegesis. Um, and all that means is, like, that's a theological term for, like, extracting from the text what it means for us. So a lot of, like, seminarians will use that term. It sounds kind of hoity-toity, but that's what it is. Um, and it's one of the most helpful ways. It's kind of a hermeneutical, like, interpretation tool to be able to understand Scripture and approach God's Word as authority for us. Now, there's another option that is, I would say, probably um, a large percentage of people that even do read Scripture. What surveys tell us is that very few read Scripture, period. And that includes whether it's believers or unbelievers. It's largely um, a book that is just not well read, okay? Um, but there's this other term called eisegesis, okay? So first is exegesis where we allow the Scripture to talk and speak to us. And then eisegesis is approaching the text with a presupposition or a bias or kind of our own ideas, and we read that into the text. And that's what a lot of us do. And so here's why this is really important, um, and this is not just irrelevant seminarian talk, is that how we approach the Scripture is of the utmost importance, and it'll have huge implications on how we live our lives, what we believe, and then in turn, how we operate, how we interact with others. And so we'll either live a life that's informed and illuminated by Scripture with God himself as the author, or we live life where we are the author. So ultimately, this really is kind of a question of authority, okay? And this authority question is linked to um, interpretation, okay? Those are really intertwined. So we are in this series, What Really Matters, okay? And I started the first week of the series talking about just the importance of us listening to each other in listening to God, that that really matters. And so this morning, we really want to approach God with that posture, allowing Him to speak to us and really listening intently to His Word. So I'm going to read through a number of passages, and we're going to kind of do this together. And I'm going to ask you some questions, and we're going to interact here. And essentially, we're going to assemble this teaching together, okay? 
And so grab a Bible. If you don't have one, there's a, a bunch of them over there that, on that table. Um, or if you have the church app on your phone, all these notes are on here. So all the scripture is on there. How many actually um, use the church app during the service? Okay, a few of us, right? I know my wife does. So with that, you can follow along with all the verses that I'm going to ref- be referring to. Also, then you can put your own notes in the side. And then when you're done, you can email all those notes to yourself. And then you have a copy of everything you've kind of thought through today. And it gives you some time during the week to pray through it and think about it too. So that's why we do the app and that's why we have those notes for you. It's not to be cool and have an app. It's so that we can understand scripture better is really what it's about. So we're going to look at Genesis 18 together. And we're going to pick this up as Abraham is having this conversation with God about the fate of some people that are important to him. And to set it up, there's these um, like sins that Sodom and Gomorrah, this area that God had observed. And theologians will debate over what those sins were, but we're going to enter in kind of into this conversation between Abraham and God, and it's really interesting. So Genesis 18, and Genesis is first book of Scripture, so it's way to the left, okay? So go that direction. Turn left. It's like NASCAR, just keep turning left, you'll eventually get there, okay? A um, few of you got that. So, we're going to start in verse 20. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. And so apparently God has heard about what is going on there. He's aware of that if, if we believe in his omniscience. Um, However, he's having this conversation, Abraham is having this conversation with God. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remaining, standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Okay, so Abraham is beginning this conversation, and he's appealing to God. Based on what? I heard somebody say it. His character. His character. So Abraham knows like he has this relationship with God and has begun understanding his character, that he has this reputation for doing what's right. He has some prior experience. And so he starts to kind of just remind God, like, this is how you operate. And this, like, this, I don't get this. There could be 50 people here that follow you, and are you going to wipe them out too? So this is a, you know, this is a, like, this question makes sense. Are you like this arbitrary judge that just, you're going to 
like react and hurt people. And so as we read a little further, we see that Abraham starts to push in and press in towards God even more. And so the Lord responds to Abraham and he says, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. So Abraham sees that I'm starting to get somewhere. And he moves even closer. So then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? So he leaves the math to God. God here says, well, if I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. And then he goes again. Well, once again, he spoke to him, what if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham keeps going. Okay, eventually gets to the end. What if only 10 can be found there? God answers, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Okay, so let's exegete this. Let's extract from this text. What does the scripture plainly say? And that is one of the first questions that um, is extremely important for us when it comes to interpreting scripture accurately is what does the text plainly say, okay? Besides, God seems proficient at math, okay? What does this text tell us plainly about whatever? Go. God cares about people. Okay. What was that? God has mercy, Okay, so he won't punish the righteous, and yet there is some consequences for the wicked. However, in this case, he is not willing to dole that out and just wipe out everybody. Okay, what else? Okay. Right? Right. So Abraham at this point is, is probably learning more about the character of God, knowing that with each of these questions, I'm learning more about how he operates and how he thinks and how he views us as individuals. Okay, what else? Okay. So there could be, right, looking at this, that God looks out and he has his kids everywhere and he is thinking about that. Okay, what motivates God? Like in this case, what could we extrapolate and say, well, why is God like that? Why? Why? 
Okay. How about the first thing that was brought up? His character. There is something about his character that comes to the surface here. Joe hit it. Like one of the the main truths in this was that he cares deeply about people. And he will do what is right by them. So he's not an arbitrary, angry father who will just unload on anybody in his path. And Abraham, having this relationship, knows that he can begin to go to God and appeal to him, and God listens to him. That's instructive for us. Because what it shows us is that there is this big picture of what's going on with kind of like righteousness and judgment. And at the same time, in the midst of that big picture, there are individuals that seem small and inconsequential. And God is taking them into account. And his followers are appealing to him on behalf of them. We are actors in that big play. It's a really important truth. Okay, now we're going to move to Luke 15. So turn to the right a lot further. Luke 15 in the Gospels. Verses 1 through 8. Verses 1 through 8. Now the tax collectors and sinners, the tax collectors, terrible reputation, corrupt, looked out for themselves, stole from the people. A lot of them were stealing from their own people, okay? Scumbags. That's what this is saying. The scumbags are all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who are standing there, they're turned off by the entire scene. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They're acknowledging that he's welcoming them. He seems like he is like enjoying being in their presence, and these people are dirty. They've sinned, they've fallen short of all of these standards that we follow, and he welcomes them and he eats with them. He's invited them into this. It's disgusting. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. Then he goes on. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. 
Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels. Sorry. I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Okay. So, kind of a mixed audience here. We have the people that have gathered around Jesus to hear him. We have some outsiders that have gathered around to criticize Jesus. Jesus speaks to both of them at the same time. He's got a dual message. Let me hear from you guys. What is the message right here that Jesus shares with them, with the religious heat, the Pharisees, and with those scumbags? Go for it. He celebrates those who turn to him. And what was the number? Like, what does it take for God to celebrate, like rejoice in his presence in heaven? What does it take? How many people does it take for him to celebrate? One. One. That's it. What else does this communicate to us? Okay, that salvation is for those that turn towards him. What does this say about this bigger question that came up earlier, God's character? What does this say about the way he's wired in relationship to us? He loves us. He loves us. There is a deep passion that when just one person turns to him, that that causes him and everybody who's around him to celebrate. What else? Ryan. He wants us back. We're lost. We're confused. We're dazed. We don't know where we're going. And he searches Okay, what is going on, you hit it, what is going on in both of these scenarios that there's a common theme in each one of the parables? Somebody's lost. What does the shepherd do? What does the woman do? They search. They search, they look, there's effort They're after it. They're almost going to stop at nothing to get what they lost. What does that mean to us? God won't give up. 
Could that mean that right now God is searching, looking? He is after you. That he is after your friends, your family, your co-workers. That right now he is sweeping the house with a light on looking for someone to find. Okay, Joe said this earlier, let's connect this to this section on what really matters. What does this say about what really matters to God? Or I should say, who? Hmm? Right. What this says to you right now here in 2019 is that you matter. Just one. Just one. You matter. That's what Jesus was after in this parable. Those sinners matter to me. And you Pharisees, you might be critical, but they matter. And I'm willing to go to any lengths to hang out with them and to reach them because they matter. Just like you guys matter to me. Yeah. Absolutely. So there is a heart difference between that group of people. Like, it's not just an outward, these people have done a number of things that are displeasing, and these people are, have done things to please God. There is something else that God is after that's much bigger than that, and that is their heart condition before God and this willingness to be open and honest because I guarantee those sinners if we were in that room and we'd say hey you know do you view yourself as a righteous person they would say no not at all in fact there was something about the relationship with Jesus that is causing them to be attracted like there's something about the message that they're probably thinking we thought we were sunk And now it appears there might be hope for us even. Like the gospel was starting to really come, you know, I I think it was starting to be clear to them that there's a chance. They'd hear Jesus and say, so you're telling me there's a chance, okay? All right, we're going to look at some further Revelation. Okay, revelation, a big religious term. That means that in and of ourselves, like we have to rely on God to reveal to us what he is like. Otherwise, we come up with a bunch of different ideas. 
But Scripture, that's why it's Scripture, that's why it's like, oh, why do you always talk about the Bible and you read from it? Because this is God revealing himself to us. So Scripture is God's revelation to us. And so does he reveal it all in one place at one time? No. There's like this progressive revelation. So in our relationships, so a friendship that we have, let's ask ourselves, um, when we come to know a close friend, okay, um, does that happen like in a short conversation? Usually, no. Sometimes we're like, we just became best friends. But... (laughs) But really, when it comes to someone we're really tight with, you guys know that that has involved a long period of time of getting to know that person in relationship, okay? Essentially, when we have this revelation presented to us of who God is, we have this comprehensive and progressive revealing of who He is. To the point where when we see how he operates throughout history, we start to get to that point where we know him well. And Abraham is starting to get that. He's starting to get to know his father well. And even is starting to take some steps and kind of boldly ask God to work in certain ways. Because he's getting to know him. So there's this, this is kind of a progressive revelation to Abraham. All right. Um, Let me move on here. As he reveals himself, we get this clearer picture of who he is and what he is like. And then even as we go towards, like, as that continues, there's a section where it says, Until eventually, like, we have Jesus, and there's a verse that says he is the exact representation of the Father. So we have this progressive revelation to the point where the disciples can say, if you want to see the Father, look at him. And Jesus even saying that, like, me and the Father, we're one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So that is... Even more revelation for them. So Matthew 6. Let's turn to there. Turn to the left a little bit. Matthew chapter 6. Do not store up for yourselves, this is 19 through 24, treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So this is Jesus speaking. Let's ask that question. What is the plain meaning of the text here? Plain meaning of the text. And and the reason theologians ask that is they don't want us to just start like thinking allegorically and but to think what is this just very clearly plainly say to us? What was that? Okay. So what gets your attention gets you. Okay? So certain things can own us. 
All right? What else? We can have treasure in heaven. Okay, for me, I read that. My first, the first time I read this, my first question was, I, what does that mean? Treasures in heaven. Okay, we'll talk about that. What else? What's the plain meaning of this text? Our stuff doesn't last. It's temporary. It's temporary. Okay, so there's a main point oftentimes in this ancient Near Eastern literature and storytelling, which Jesus consistently used in the parables. This is one of the things about parables. This isn't technically a parable. However, with parables, it was not a place to kind of extract doctrine. It was usually a story that was used to tell like a lesson, like there's a moral of this story. So the main point, is it treasures in heaven? That's probably a side issue here. He refers to that, but the bigger issue that he's really getting at is our priorities. Our priorities. What is your priority? And God is saying, that's what really matters. There are things that we can prioritize here on the earth, and they're temporary. They're not going to last. But we want to give ourselves to things that are eternal. And then he ties that further to our hearts. Our hearts. When we give ourselves to worldly pursuits, somehow it collects our heart in the process. We get carried away by this undertow and we don't even know it. There's a verse from, I shouldn't say a verse, there's a line from Fight Club where Brad Pitt says to Ed Norton is his character after all of his stuff has just gotten burned. And he's like, man, it's a bummer when all your stuff owns you. Same point. Our stuff can own us, but the bigger point here is what finishes there on that end of that verse. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, let's extract that out. What is God saying then about our hearts? He wants them. He wants our hearts. Everything. He doesn't want us to be distracted by every shiny object. Or get carried away by the undertow of culture. But he's after our hearts. That really matters. Okay, so God's spoken to us, hopefully this morning, in a few ways. 
One, people matter to God. You matter to God. Our hearts matter to God. And last, we're going to finish with this. Understanding God's word matters. Understanding it. Okay, we do not want to be like the unwise person in Proverbs that leans on their own understanding. I mean, if there's one thing I've learned after observing humanity in my own life for about 50 years is that we have no idea what we're doing. Okay? I mean, we don't. Apart from Jesus, we screw up everything. It is a mess. So we're going to finish with Matthew 13, 1 through 22. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. So there's such a big crowd, they're crowding in on him that he's literally got to get in a boat, kind of move away so he's separate from the audience and he can speak to them that way. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, 160 or 30 times what was sown. And then he finishes with this. Whoever has ears, let him hear. Whoever has ears, let him hear. So this is a parable. And Jesus used this storytelling um, genre, you could say, when he communicated publicly often. Why do you think he used parables? What do you guys think? Okay. So there's something about connecting with common people. All right. What else? Relating it? Okay. When there's a parable, you tell the story, it requires engagement. It requires the listener to listen and engage and interpret what's going on. Jesus was concerned about those who genuinely wanted to listen to him, where there was this effort. That's why he finishes with, he who has ears, let him hear. There are some of you that are listening intently here. So when there's a parable, it instantly, it invites dialogue. 
So what is he saying? It invites engagement, and it demands a lesson. I can think of, like, quizzes that I took when I was a younger kid, and I remember, you know, there's all these that are kind of just fill in the blank or whatever, but then the brain teaser would come, and I would think, you know, kind of that very last one where I think, oh, gosh, now I really got to engage and really got to listen. And that's what these parables were like. And like I said, theologians will tell you you don't cherry pick things out of parables to create doctrine because you'll get, you'll get off. But in this ancient Near East, they were used to teach a main lesson. And it's a scenario that everybody is familiar with. And so Jesus is not, like, he's not teaching Scripture. This is Scripture for us. But is he teaching Scripture right there? No, he is not. He's using a common human experience that all in the audience could grasp. Some of them maybe had even experienced it personally. So then he would take a non-spiritual story to teach a spiritual lesson. In some cases. In other cases, like it says when he was walking with those two men at Emmaus, on the road to Emmaus, he opened up the scriptures to them. So Jesus used different tactics depending on who he was talking with and what the purpose was. There was not this blanket, this is the way it is to be done. There was something going on here where Jesus knows, here's what I'm going to do in this situation. So as we read Matthew 13, Jesus is speaking to the common man. All right. The disciples... Verse 10, came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? So there's something there, like when he gets alone with them, he's not speaking in parables. He's speaking openly, he's probably talking a lot about the Old Testament and Scripture that they are familiar with and explaining, and they don't totally get that. And he says, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Jesus knows he's talking to a crowd, most likely this agrarian culture, that is fully aware of these basic farming principles. He speaks to them on their turf, in their language, to make his point, and then intends to take them somewhere spiritual. He knows that his disciples are teachable, and even then, they probably don't fully understand what's going on either. They're sort of in that boat now too, like part of it is, why do you teach the people in parables, and like, we're not sure we get that either. What's going on here? And Jesus then says, let me give you the plain meaning of the text, okay? 18 through 23. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. Here it is. Here's your plain meaning. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. 
The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. Understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. So they hear the message. There's these different seeds that Jesus describes. There's some that hear the message but never really understand it. What little does get planted gets snatched away. Before it can take root, it doesn't germinate, doesn't grow. The second is this person who hears it, initially receives it with joy. They're genuinely excited, but then when they get persecuted for their faith or following biblical principles, it's just hard, and they fall away. The third seed is the person who hears it. They hear it too. But this quest for wealth and success, it just takes over and it chokes out their spiritual life. And then finally, there's this other seed. And this is what God is after. This is the point. This is the one that Jesus wants them to think about. There's this soil called good soil. That's his desire for us. A receptive, listening heart. heart. And they do the work and hard work of understanding what they're listening to. So their posture before God is receptive. This is our goal as followers of Jesus. We want to be good soil. If we are receptive to God, He can do incredible things in us and through us. So, my question for evaluation is this, and as we've been talking through this What Really Matters series, I've kind of mentioned, like, hey, these are some common things that we should evaluate ourselves and ask ourselves these questions throughout the week. First is, are we spending enough time in his word allowing him to reveal himself to us? It's a very practical thing. Or do we ignore his revelation to us and project our ideas onto him? We just want to be good soil. Good soil that's receptive to him communicating who he is and revealing to us. I heard um, somebody um, talking the other day. And the first thing they said was, after spending time in the Word this morning, and then kind of went on as to how their transformation, like just how they were thinking differently. And I thought, that's just the key, was the very beginning of that, after spending time in the Word. In other words, just listening to what God had revealed to him, he walked out of that time thinking differently where he wasn't, like he felt like he had kind of been molded and transformed by culture and the world. After spending time with God, he thought differently. And so that's how we move like from autonomy to followership. 
And that's what Jesus asked of his disciples. He didn't say, be cool. He didn't say, go bask in the world. He said, just very simply, come and just follow me. It's a personal invitation to follow him. One of the main, way that, main ways that he speaks is through his word. So another question we want to ask ourselves too is are we practicing eisegesis or exegesis? Because that will make all the difference in our lives. Do we allow God the authority and the right to speak to us about what he's like or do we tell him what he should be like. It's really important. So in summary, our exegesis today revealed individuals matter to God. We matter to God. Our priorities matter to God because they shape our hearts and our receptiveness matters. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful that in a world that is so confusing, like where we can be tossed about on the waves with no compass, that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. With so much confusion, so much that can send us in directions that are all over the place, that we have this anchor for our soul, your revelation to us. God, I pray that our Bibles would get worn out, that we would have to get new ones because they fall apart, because we are spending time in your word. Lord, convict us in a righteous way if that's something that we just, we haven't been doing. God, we desire to be followers that are good soil, where we would be receptive and you would grab our hearts and we could experience you. So thank you, God. You've not left us alone, that you've given us your revelation, that you've filled us with your spirit to understand the truth that you've given us in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Steve is going to lead us as we're going to spend some time um, in communion together. Another really just opportunity to be receptive to God. Thank you, Jim. You know, this morning as we uh, think about God prioritizing people and our hearts, uh, it's amazing to recognize that he knows us well. He knew us well 2,000 years ago, and he knows us well today. He knows that we forget. And one of the ways that he has helped us remember is by giving us an opportunity through symbols to remember what he's done for us. If you imagine um, what the Jewish culture was uh, the, over 2,000 years ago, um, once you end up in maybe March, you're looking forward to a celebration that comes once a year that's called the Passover. And the Passover celebrates God's goodness and his rescue and how he cares for us as individuals and as a people. And, uh, and that celebration would have a group of things on a plate. And that meal would be a special meal. Um, that plate might have a, a number of pieces to it, maybe some parsley, which symbolizes some of the newness of life. 
uh, a number of other pieces on there, some bitter herbs that talked about how bitter slavery was. And one of the pieces was matzah, unleavened bread. This, this symbol of, of the, the Jewish people needing to leave so quickly that they couldn't, the bread could not be raised, uh, risen. And obviously there's a, a cup because it's a meal. And as we see at the beginning of this uh, passage in Matthew where uh, Jesus is uh, leading his people for the first time in a new covenant, he takes this, which is kind of like, uh, he takes the symbols, some of the, the key symbols of this meal and transforms them. It would almost be like if, if he came today and said, you know, there's no more Christmas. We're not doing Christmas once a year anymore. We're going to celebrate Christmas as often as you want. As often as you do, remember that I came to be born. No more Christmas. Don't expect in, in, in December the 25th for there to be Christmas. Instead, we're doing it this way. And it could be seen as either blasphemous or life-changing. And it's life-changing. So what we're going to do here uh, as we uh, start the first part of this uh, worship song. I'd like to invite you to come to one of the tables and get uh, a cup and a piece of bread and take it back to your seat. And we're going to take a break partway through the song and we'll be able as a family uh, to take the bread and the cup.